Well, let's turn to Psalm 1. Can we do that? Psalm 1. And as you're turning there, I want you to know we begin tonight a journey that will last for a while, unless the Lord comes back. The goal is to preach all 150 of the Psalms. Uh, that'll take 150 at least weeks, maybe more. And uh, we've done that before. Some of you have been here for seven, eight, nine, ten years, and a couple of years after beginning Christ Fellowship, we began on Wednesday night by preaching through the Psalms, and it took about four years to finish all 150 of the Psalms, and we did it. But I think a lot of you weren't here then, and uh, so we need to go back to it because I need it again, and I think it may be a great blessing for you as well. I am overwhelmed and overjoyed at the opportunity to read and preach Psalm 1. Uh, my goal, just so you know, kind of my philosophy in preaching on Wednesday night, I'm going to preach, but my goal is not to preach a lengthy, deep sermon each week, although there's so many Hebrew details I would love to just pour out and dump on you, but you might get bored with that. Um, I want to just simply proclaim the, the meaning of the whole psalm as a whole, as a general psalm, a prayer to God. Uh, and then I want that to prepare us for our prayer meeting. So each week, at least there might be some exceptions, but my, my goal is to teach the psalm, and then the very first part of our prayer meeting will be corporately together to pray the psalm. So if there's maybe a phrase or a verse or a doctrine or an attribute of God or something that kind of jumps out at you, maybe circle it or star it and maybe you could pray that as we're praying through the psalm afterward. We'll break up into small groups here in a little while and do that. But before we, we break up into small groups, we'll pray through the psalm together. So, Psalm 1. Let's begin the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." It's well known. A wonderful psalm, a familiar psalm. I wonder if you were to reflect back to your childhood, there's probably songs that you learned as a child that you still know by heart. Because music has a way of making things memorable in your mind and in your heart. Maybe it's Jesus Loves Me or any other song that you may have learned as a child. You remember it. It has that indelible mark on your heart and on your mind. Well, did you know that God has given you a hymnal? He's given you a hymnal. 
And we call it the book of Psalms because that comes from the Greek translation of the book of Psalms, which means to pluck or to make music. The book of Psalms is a hymnal of 150 praise songs to God. It is the inspired hymnal that God has given to his people, not just to the New Testament church, but even in the Old Testament time, so that we might know God and praise God and sing to him. And guess what? It's perfect. I mean, every word in this hymnal is divine. It's reliable. And there's something about music that makes it memorable. One of the things you're going to hear as we go through psalm after psalm after psalm is I'm going to give you many instances in church history where people have been suffering or they've been as martyrs on their dying breath or whatever, singing or worshiping the psalms because as they sung them, they were memorable. They committed these things to memory to carry them through the trial and worship God with the hymnal that God has given. One of the things you're going to find is that the book of Psalms is the rock solid foundation for what we call theology proper, knowing God rightly. You see, I believe, and I want you to believe this, and I'm going to preach this passionately as we go through Psalms, that the Psalms tell us how life really is, but it's not always easy and rosy. It can be tough. It can be difficult. There can be times of lament, times of trial, times of sorrow, times of sadness, times of anger, times of confusion. And you think, I don't know what to do. Well, guess what? You can turn to a psalm and you can let the scripture's words become your words in prayer. Or you can let the hymn of scripture become the hymn of your heart, even in the difficult times. Sometimes you turn on Joy FM. Not everything is rosy and upbeat like that. There are difficult times in life. And the book of Psalms is very real. Now, I think what made Martin Luther the man that he was, was not Martin Luther. It was the God who worked through Martin Luther. And now, one of the things that we need to understand about church history and about men and women of church history, saints of old, is that what made them who they were is they have to have a solid theology of the gospel. Well, that might come, for example, through the book of Romans. But what's going to give you the courage and the stability and the boldness when you are defending the gospel in light of those who are threatening you, or in the presence of those who want to kill you? Where do you get that kind of boldness? And I think what made Martin Luther the man that it was, was Psalms gave him his rock-solid theology of God. Oh, he knew the gospel of Romans, yes. But the book of Psalms, because he sung it, he knew it, he meditated on it, he memorized it, it gave him his theology for life. And yet, as we begin the book of Psalms, as we begin this great journey through the hymn book that God gave us, we begin with Psalm 1, which is a psalm all about choices. Choices. It's a wisdom psalm. 
That's the genre, the kind of literature. It's a wisdom psalm. God gives two ways of life. There are two destinies, and you need to choose rightly and choose wisely. Because a choice will lead to a pattern, and a pattern will lead to a lifestyle. Or one commentator put it like this, be careful because your decisions will ultimately determine your destinies if you're not careful. A decision here produces a habit there, which will lead to a lifestyle that you will have. And what Psalm 1 begins with in the beautiful hymn book that God gave is God wants you to know wisdom. He wants you to sing the psalm because he wants you to have wisdom and hide it in your heart. And guess what? It begins, look in your Bible at verse 1, with the opening words, how blessed. Hiding the book of Psalms in your heart is the blessed life. Worshiping God and worshiping Christ is the blessed life. It is the only way of living life that gives abundant, incessant, persistent, happy joys. If I could be so bold as to put it like this, the unbeliever has everything to weep in and nothing to rejoice in. They have no happiness, truly. They have no true joy. The unbeliever has no true peace, and the unbeliever has no true life. None. But the godly man, the elect of God, the one who is forgiven of Christ, the one who is made alive by the Spirit of God, we have abounding joys like a waterfall that just keeps coming over you. Psalm 21.6 God makes the godly person blessed forever. Psalm 32, how blessed is the one who knows that his sins are forgiven. Psalm 112, verse 1, the blessed man is the one who delights in the commands of God. Jesus picked up on this in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the man who, in all of the ways in which he spoke of the godly life there. Now, I want to show you something by way of structure. It's really important. Look at the beginning of Psalm 1. How blessed. See that there? Look at the last line of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verse 12, the very last line is what? How blessed. Do you see that there? It's a very unique, a very specific, and a very identical way that the psalmist is bracketing. He's bracketing Psalms 1 and 2 together because guess what? The early church believed that these two psalms were one. They believed that they were one psalm and somewhere along the line they may have been divided into two psalms. In Psalm 1, we have wisdom in the written word. In Psalm 2, we have salvation in the living or the incarnate word, Jesus. Psalm 1 is about meditating on the law of God. Psalm 2 is about worship and bowing before the Son of God. They go together, and guess what? Psalm 3, if you look at the very beginning of Psalm 3, it's the first psalm with the title, which shows us that's the beginning of the Psalter, technically. Psalms 1 and 2 might be introductory. 
Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the book of Psalms. So if you and I had a Hebrew manuscript from, let's just say, the medieval times. Let's just say we went to Spain, we got a 12th century Hebrew manuscript of the book of Psalms. When you unroll that Hebrew scroll, here's what you would find. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 would be in red. Everything else would be in black. Psalm 1 would be in red, and it would not have a number. It would not have a number because in the early church, all through early church history, it was understood that Psalm 1 was the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. It's like the gateway into the book of Psalms. It prepares you for the 149 to follow. Why? It tells you, you need to meditate on the word of God. You need to know the word of God and hide it in your heart. It will guard you. It will protect you. It will give you a solid foundation for the storms of life. So let's walk through Psalm 1 together. God gives two ways, two paths, two choices, two destinies. And in this wisdom psalm, It's almost like God says, here are the two choices. You got to choose wisely. Look with me in your outline at number one, in your outline. Number one, in verses one through three, the psalm teaches us you must follow the way of the righteous. You need to follow the way of the righteous. Now, verse 1, how blessed is the man. I want to pause there because in the Hebrew, this is so cool. It is plural and intensive, meaning how many are the abundant happinesses that come upon the man. God wants the righteous man to be happy, blessed, joyful, overwhelmed. He shows you the happy way to live life. Boys and girls, I I tell my children frequently, following God is always the best way to live your life. It might be hard and it might be difficult and it might be lonely at times, but I promise you, it is the happiest and most joyful and best way to live life. Life. Well, follow the way of the righteous. Well, how do you do that? And how is that person known? Well, in your outline, you see three subpoints. He's known by what he refuses. He's known by what he pursues. And then he's known by how he lives. Notice verse one. Notice the progression. How blessed is the man first who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The godly man who walks in the way of the righteous is known by what he says no to, what he refuses, what he departs from. There's a progression. You're walking in life, but then you stop. And then finally, you sit. You're walking and you're passing by, and then you stop and you contemplate, and then you sit and you're imbibing. And the godly man is known By what he refuses to partake in. What is it? Verse 1. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked is the most general term for the evildoer. Somebody who just disobeys God. He's the ungodly one. Second, nor does he stand 
in the way or the path of the sinners. They missed the mark. They've disobeyed God's law, nor do they sit in the seat of scoffers. I think this has a lot of application for how we teach and educate our children. You can go to a public university and have your children sit in the seat of scoffers all day long. A scoffer is a blasphemer. A scoffer is the most graphic word for a blatant, uh, rebellious, and a knowing unbeliever who willfully refuses God. How blessed is the man who sees the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers, and he doesn't stop and contemplate, nor does he sit and fellowship with them, but he passes by them. He's also known not just for what he refuses. Look at verse 2. He's known for what he pursues. What he pursues. I love that word, but. By the way, I'm going to apply that in just a moment in a very specific way. But verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Notice there's a little bit of a structure here. The delight of the person is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of the Lord, he meditates. Often in Hebrew, the middle two points are emphasized, which is the law of the Lord. In other words, know your Bible well. We live in a biblically illiterate time. We live in a society, we live in a culture where we have more access to the Bible than ever before. And yet we live in a time where we, we are more illiterate of the Bible than ever before. We ought to know and delight and meditate in the Word of God. Not only reading the Word, but the idea of meditating is when the Word of God grabs a hold of you and the Word of God seizes you like arms. It reaches out and it grabs you and it holds you and it seizes you and it fills you with its truth. Going to Israel, you can go down by the Dead Sea in the southern desert area. And there was a Jewish sect that lived at that time called the Essenes in the area of Qumran. Well, they took Psalm 1 Literally, because what they would do is they would have a rotation of interpreters who would study and expound the law of God literally 24 hours a day, day and night because of these verses, realizing that no one person could always do this 24 hours a day, day and night. I think they missed the metaphor of what is being said here. But on the other hand, there's a great point to be taken. There's a great principle here that all through your life, morning, afternoon, evening, from when you wake up to when you go down, the word of God should have influence in your heart and your mind and your thoughts and your words and your conduct. One lady, she's a homemaker. She has a blog. She said, I write Bible verses on index cards and I tape them above my sink. As I wash my dishes, I read the verses over and over, either aloud or maybe in my head. And that way I will be encouraged in my heart. And then my children who see me doing the dishes, they see what I'm doing. And it often leads to me praying scripture. And then my family sees me praying the word as I worship God throughout my daily activities. 
As you're going through your daily routine, from the dishes to your employment to whatever it is you do, meditate on the Word of God. The word meditating means to repeat over and over and over. It doesn't mean to empty your mind. It's the opposite. It means to fill your mind. When we meditate on the Bible, it's like when you want to remember something and you keep saying it over and over and over and over. That's meditation biblically. Meditation biblically. So the godly man is known first by what he refuses, second by what he pursues. And now in verse three, third, he is known by how he lives. He will be like, see the word like, a simile. He'll be like a tree, a tree planted. Now this, this is awesome. The Hebrew for planted. Do you see that there, that English word planted? Literally from the Hebrew, he will be like a tree that has been divinely planted. The point is the doctrine of regeneration. You didn't, you didn't plant yourself. God is the one who planted you and gave you life. The point here is the new birth. The point here is that God is the one who has planted you and your roots are going deep and God did the work in saving you and regenerating you. It's like God is the master gardener. You'll be like a tree. And you'll be like that tree firmly planted by God by streams of water which yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers. Now, you're going to hear me say things over and over in Hebrew poetry. As we go through week by week by week, Hebrew poetry is often short. Look at verse 3. Look at how many descriptive phrases there are. I mean, in my English Bible, there are like four descriptive phrases. Why? Because the psalmist wants to bring out emphasis of what the godly man is like. The man whom God regenerates will be a fruit-bearing person. You'll be fruitful. You'll bear much, much fruit. Let me give you a couple of scriptures to prove this. In Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, this is the account in Luke's gospel of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this in verse 43, There is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor is there a bad tree which produces good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the good treasure, brings forth... The evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 15. When he was speaking of himself as the vine. He said, abide in me and I in you. And then he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him will bear much fruit. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. He said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So if God has saved you, if God has planted you with new life, you'll be a fruit bearing person. 
a fruit-bearing person. You will bear fruit. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works. The first heading is you and I must follow the way of the righteous. But think with me back at verse 1. What is it that influences you in your life? Because the godly man does not stand or sit or even walk in the counsel of the wicked. What about the movies or the media or the friends or the worldly wisdom or the popular opinion that often can have a lot of sway in our culture? What is it that influences you? Is it the way of the sinner? Is it the counsel of the wicked? Is it the seat of the scoffer? Do we learn from them? What has influence and sway in your life? Well, how do we guard from being influenced by all of that? The point in verse 2 is that we ought to meditate on God's word. So maybe you work out. Maybe you go to the gym. Maybe you go for walks. Maybe you're commuting to work. Maybe in your morning getting ready for the day. At night getting ready for bed. Meditate. Pick a topic. Pick a verse. Pick a theme. Pick a doctrine. And have that one doctrine like a piece of hard candy, and you just suck on it over and over and over. You don't just chew it quickly, but you, but you suck on it, and you, and you enjoy over and over. That's like meditation. We take the Word of God, we put it in our mind and heart, and we're just thinking about that truth, that Scripture, over and over and over. For example, in my morning workouts yesterday, I was meditating on the doctrine of heaven. Today in my workout was the doctrine of hell. Tomorrow will be the brevity of life. So just one simple truth, one simple doctrine, often it comes from my quiet time or maybe it's themes that I want to work through, and just one thing to think about, to meditate, to just come at it from every different direction, to fill your mind and your heart from it. The godly man bears fruit. How can you bear fruit? How can you prosper before God? Doing good to your spouse, doing good to your kids, serving in the church, doing good to your fellow men. It's no wonder the early church took the book of Psalms and said, let's sing it. Let's know it. Let's memorize it. Let's go over it and rehearse it over and over and over. So, number one, we need to follow, follow the way of the righteous. Follow the way of the righteous. But now in verses 4 and 5, and really in verse 6 as well, we need to second of all, flee the way of the wicked. You see, in wisdom literature, there's two choices. There's God's way, and then there's the wicked way. There's the way of wisdom and the way of the world. You can't have both. You can't have neither. It's either one or the other. Look at verse 4. Look at how the psalmist gives a contrast. Not so the wicked. Very emphatic in Hebrew. Not so the wicked. No, no, no. They're not like a tree. No, no. They are like chaff. Chaff. You see in your outline here, they're unstable. 
Why? Chaff is the image of winnowing grain at harvest time, where the you, you throw the, the grain in the air and the, the wheat falls to the ground and the little kernels, the little outer shell, it's it's worthless, it's useless, it's it's light. The wind just blows it away and it's burnt. It's good for nothing. Light of no value, of no substance. And the psalmist says the wicked are like that. They're like that. They're, they're like chaff which the wind drives away. They have no root, no foundation, no substance. They're passing. They have no value, weightless, blown away, and burnt. Interesting. How easy it is for God to blow and rid the earth of all the wicked. They are unstable, verse 4. Look at verse 5. They are unprepared. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. What's that? I think the psalmist in this wisdom literature is looking ahead to the final judgment. We know in much more detail from Revelation 20, this is the great white throne. The wicked will not have a place to stand, but when the books are opened and all the people are written, they are judged according to the deeds that they have done written in God's books. They are guilty. They are guilty. Nor will they have a place in the assembly of the righteous. Well, we know from Scripture, not only is the church... For believers to be equipped and then to share the gospel with the lost. But think of the new heavens and the new earth ultimately in Revelation 21. All of the murderers and liars and the immoral and the unbelievers are outside of the life of God. And they are in the outer darkness in the lake of fire. Spurgeon called this the double doom of all sinners. They are condemned at the judgment bar and separated from all of God's people forever. Forever, forever. There must be a judgment. And yet there's the inevitable doom of all of the wicked who will not walk in God's wisdom. They will be judged. Transgressors will be seized. Unbelievers will be brought before the judgment bar of God. And the wicked are in danger. They're in danger. That leads to verse 6. Not only are the way of the wicked unstable and are they unprepared, but they are unknown in verse 6. Because look at verse 6 here, and there's so much here. There's so many word plays and so many uh, uh, um, repeated words that the psalmist is bringing out. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But notice there's no mention of the Lord knowing in the second phrase. Oh, he knows the righteous, but he does not intimately know the way of the wicked. The Lord knows the righteous. What does that mean? The Hebrew idea of knowing means there is an intimate love, a tender care of God. It is the knowledge of God's great love for his people. He loves in this knowing kind of a way, the way of the righteous. This should overwhelm you. God has an intimate love for you. 
He knows his own. It's like Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. For those whom the Lord foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. God has an intimate knowledge. By the way, the Hebrew verbal form signifies ongoing action that will never stop. God has a secure, protecting way of caring and knowing and loving his people that will never come to an end. But the wicked, no knowledge of God, no love of God, no care of God, their way will perish. It's an amazing way that the psalm brings out wisdom. There's two ways. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's the way of God and the way of rejection of God. There's the way of meditating on the word and the way of rejecting the word of God. Two ways of life. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in the exact same way. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Two ways, two gates. And then he talks about how you will know them by their fruits. Two trees, two kinds of professions. And then he says there's two kinds of builders. You hear the word and then you build by hearing on God's word and obeying it. Or you hear God's word and you don't obey it. Like building your house on the sand. Two gates, two trees, two foundations. Jesus teaches the way of wisdom as well. This is important for us because God sets before you the way of wisdom that leads to life or the way of rejection that leads to death. All of you boys and girls, listen to the way of wisdom. Follow the way of wisdom. Let your life be shaped by the word of God. Rather than allowing the world to influence us, Let's allow the word to influence us as we live our lives. Now you look at verses 1 to 3, the way of the righteous in closing here. And you think, boy, I wish I could do that. But who could do that? Who, who, who could live this out? Years ago, there was a man by the name of Joseph Flax. Traveled to Israel. And uh, he was giving a lecture in the city of Jerusalem for a huge gathering of Jews and Arabs who were gathered together there in the old city. And as this man, Joseph Flax, went to the front, he opened up his Hebrew Bible and he said, I want you to take your Bibles. They all had Hebrew, of course. And he said, turn to Psalm 1 for his text. He read it. He focused on verse 1 and 2 and 3 and he said, who can do this? Who can live this out perfectly? Well, one very older Jewish man in the crowd said, maybe it's Abraham, our great father. And then another man said, well, it can't be him because he lied and denied his wife. Hmm. Well, maybe another person could say, well, maybe it's Moses, the great giver of our law. Maybe Moses is the great fulfillment of this. Well, no, he killed a man and lost his temper at Meribah. And then another Jewish man said, well, maybe this godly man is the great King David. 
the great King David. And then another aged Jewish man said, well, no, it can't be him because he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And then there was a hush in that place in Jerusalem until one older Jewish man raised his hand and he said, I have a little book right here and he raised it up. He said, this little book is called the New Covenant, the New Testament. And I have been reading this New Testament. And I would say that the man of Psalm 1 is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the righteous man, ultimately. And what that means for you and me is we have a great forerunner. We have a great example. We have someone that we are to look to in our lives. So Christian, let's walk in the way of wisdom. If you're here today and you've never been planted by God, you're not bearing fruit, come to Him by faith. Come to Him by faith, ask Him to save you. And He will. He's a merciful and powerful And He is a very able Savior. Father, thank You for Your Word. We want to meditate on it and know it and hide it in our hearts. Help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.